Okay, there we go. I'm always in the smaller groups when we sing. It really accentuates those different, what is it, octaves when you go up and down. I change notes every stanza, it seems. Like I, anyhow, great to sing praises to the, to the Lord. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll continue our look in this magnificent epistle of the Apostle Paul. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at, looking at verses 19 through the end of the chapter. That's 22. All right, so if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Paul writes, So then, you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being joined together, is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Our Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you for the opportunity, as Noel said, to come together and be instructed by your word. And so we pray that you do that now. Just teach us and conform us and shape us by uh, your word of truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you can be seated. I want to begin our time tonight by asking you all a question. Were any of you born Jewish? That's a resounding no. I mean, I know all of you. I don't necessarily know all of your full background, your lineage, your heritage. We don't require an Ancestry.com test before becoming members of this church. But to the best of your knowledge, were you born a Jew? Well, for those who weren't born a direct descendant of Abraham, then you'll really want to pay attention to Paul's words at the end of Ephesians chapter 2, because This text has eternal implications for you, as it demonstrates how for all of us non-Jews or Gentiles or Goyim or peoples or nations, as the scriptures would define us, how we dogs, heathens, pagans, as some Jews would still uh, call us, how we uh, aliens, strangers, those who were far off, as the text said last week, We're brought near, welcomed into, saved into the kingdom of God, welcomed into the family of God. How we are now equals, co-heirs, co-inheritors of the promises of God made to the people of God, which have now uh, been revealed to us by the amazing grace of God alone. This is a chapter filled with truths that are of utmost importance in the life of every Gentile believer, truths which makes God's amazing grace all the more amazing. When we consider how it wasn't only our in- original sin inherited from the first man, Adam, that separated us from a holy and righteous God. It wasn't just our corrupted and cursed nature that separated us. It wasn't even our, uh, only our our willful transgression of God's holy law that had to be overcome by his sovereign grace, but it was also our ethnicity, our heritage, our cultural backgrounds that had to be overcome as well in order for us to be reconciled to an infinitely holy God. We were born enemies of God, Uh, not only enemies of God in the spiritual sense, again, 
born under the just condemnation of a holy God, judged already, Jesus said, for being a part of corrupted and cursed humanity. But we, the uncircumcised Gentiles in the flesh, were also born with the extra disadvantage of being brought into this world without having the privilege of being born among God's chosen people, ethnic Israel. In other words, our people didn't get the law. We didn't receive the land, the temple, the oracles, the prophets. The Messiah didn't come from our line, right? And because of this, just ethnically speaking, we had no hope. We were without God, based simply upon one of the shallowest, most surface-level characteristics in our lives, the ethnic line, line which he sovereignly ordained for us to be a part of. Well, how do we like that? Well, well, what are we going to do, cry about it? Should we Gentiles rush to claim victim status, as is so popular to do in this place and time? Are we going to mope and grieve and gripe and complain and tell God how unjust this supposed partiality is? You should have created me a Jew. You are so unfair. You put me at a disadvantage right from the start. No wonder I rebelled against you. Now that I think about it, it's all your fault I am the way that I am. Therefore, you have to forgive me because I could never worship a God who would create people with the capacity to sin, put them in classes where some may have greater opportunity to know you, and then condemn those who don't know you by sending them to an eternity in hell. No, it's your fault that I don't know you. It's your fault that I'm the way I am. Is that not what some people say about other doctrines as they related to salvation? Is that what we should do here tonight then? Should we just cry and curse God for not making us Jews from birth? Of course not. Why? Because Paul says, in a salvific sense, these distinctions have been eliminated during the church age. Paul says that we, Gentiles, have now been brought near by the blood of Christ, even though we're blessed through Israel and by the promises made to Israel, the dividing wall of the partition between us has been broken down. Those are Paul's words here. The enmity has been abolished, has been put to death, as we, Jew and Gentile, two men, have been made to be one new man. We have been united in Christ Jesus through the death of Christ and through his Spirit who now dwells within us, all who belong to him Jew or Gentile, and all in the same way. It's a marvelous truth. It's a magnificent truth. And it's a truth that should send us on our way this evening and throughout the rest of our lives here on earth, singing praises to his holy name. And it's a truth that Paul continues to elaborate on, doubles down on in these four verses at the end of Ephesians chapter 2. As he says in verse 19, you'll want to follow along if you have your Bibles here. Verse 19, so then, you are no longer strangers, sojourners, you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, he says. Ooh, that's rich. Rich theological truths being poured from the pen of the apostle. He says, you are strangers no more. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. They weren't for you, ethnically speaking. Before Christ, you had to be 
made a Jew to partake of them. But in your natural state, he says, you were, you were a stranger. Xenos. X-E-N-O-S. It's where we get the word xenophobic, you know. You've heard that quite a bit these past four to six years. To be a xenophobe means you have a fear of outsiders, strangers. You think about it on Sunday morning when we're all here together. You get some homeless guy, he wanders in here on a Sunday morning, some stranger that walks in. We don't just say, okay, you go go watch the kids while we all worship in here, right? No. Until we get to know him, we're cautious. We have our guard up. This person is an unknown quantity. He's unfamiliar to us. He's strange. He's foreign. Such were all of us Gentiles as it related to the covenant promises that God made to Israel. We were spiritual outsiders. We were unknown, foreign, hopeless, homeless, aliens, he calls us. We didn't belong to any particular state or city. We were sojourners. We were wanderers. We were roamers. But Paul says we are strangers no more. No longer strangers. Now we are fully known. Now we are recognized citizens of the kingdom. Now, as Peter says, we are sojourners and aliens, but to the world. Now we are partakers and beneficiaries of the covenant promises of God, and we didn't even have to become a Jew first. Isn't that something? Look again at the end of verse 19. Not only are we beneficiaries of these promises, known quantities in the redemptive plan of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but Paul takes it a step further. We're now part of God's household, meaning the family of God. This is a 180-degree turn, 180-degree shift in the life of a Gentile. We were godless, hopeless, lifeless. We were aliens, strangers, sojourners, wanderers, spiritually homeless, left outside in our natural state. Now we are welcomed in. Now we belong to the God of Israel. Now we enjoy the hope of reconciliation to the God of Israel. Now we have been brought near by and through Israel's promised Messiah. Now we have been granted life, life, eternal life in his presence forever. Rejoice in this, my brothers and sisters. He says in verse 19, you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household saints. Who are we talking about here? Who are the saints? Obviously, he's not talking about every Gentile here. This isn't a blanket statement saying, oh yeah, you're all one now. You're, you're all a part of the chosen people of God. He's not speaking about some ethnic universalism here, nor is he talking to every Jew living among us. Not every Jew is a part of God's family either. Not every Jew is a part of the kingdom of God either. But only those who have been sovereignly brought near, all of those who have who dwelling on the inside of them? The Holy Spirit, that's right. But still, who are these saints? A lot of people think this is talking about every believer who's ever lived. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, all who have been justified by their faith in the redemptive works of the Lord. And I can see a case for that. But I tend to think this is referring to the New Testament saints based on the context of the rest of the chapter, which we'll talk about here in a moment. But before we do, I want to camp out just a little bit more on Paul's mention of the household here. Again, 
we're much more than just a citizen who has been afforded some rights, privileges, and participation in state affairs. We are family members now, okay? We are brothers and sisters in Christ. I love it in Matthew's gospel and how he tells of our Lord going through Capernaum. He's teaching the people. He's healing the people. He's inviting people. Come to me, he says. Follow me. He's rebuking those who says he was doing miracles by the prince of demons, by Beelzebub. Matthew says, while he was still speaking to the crowd, someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. That's us now. All believers, whether Jew or Gentile, because we have been adopted into this family. We have been born again. Not into another earthly family, but into the family of God. I'll just be straight up. And I don't want to offend any of the people who raised me. But I have a much deeper bond with any of you, or with, with all of you, than I do my own blood relatives. Amen. Why? Because we are united. We are connected. We're tied together. This is a Union that Paul tells us in chapter 4 only comes through the Holy Spirit of God, connecting us, joining us together. I don't have the same unity with my family, with my blood family, because they don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside of them. You are my brother. You are my sister. You are my mother. Now, who's not named there? The Father. That's right. That's because no man on earth takes the place of our Heavenly Father. So... We are citizens of his kingdom. We are members of his household, both Jew and Gentile alike. Isn't that something? I think so. Not only that, but we can have absolute assurance in the unbreakable nature of this union because this household rests upon a firm foundation. This is why I think Paul is specifically talking about the church here. Of course, the Old Testament saints They're a part of the kingdom by faith. But look what Paul says in verse 20. The household of God Paul's referring to here has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, what apostles and prophets are these? Well, the apostles, of course, James, John, Peter, Paul, etc. But what prophets? You mean like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah? No, these are New Testament prophets. We know this not only because of the order they're listed here. Instead of saying prophets and apostles, he says apostles and prophets, but also because it's not the only time they're mentioned in this, in this letter here. In fact, in just a couple sentences, if you look down, chapter 3, verse 4, he'll go on again to talk about his insight into the mystery of Christ, which, he says, in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it was now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body. That's the same thing we've been talking about this evening so far. But don't miss those key words there in verse 5. Now revealed. The mystery was now revealed to the apostles and the prophets. The mystery wasn't revealed to Jeremiah. He's dead. Ezekiel, Daniel, dead. Dead. 
Paul is alive. The New Testament apostles and prophets are still alive as he pens this letter to the church in Ephesus. He'll say the same thing in chapter 4. When he speaks of the gifts the exalted Christ gave to his church, Paul says he gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Here in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, Jews, Gentiles, you're brothers. You're united in Christ through the Spirit. They're both equal members of the household of God, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So these are New Testament apostles and prophets. Now, I know what you'll say. In his first letter to the church in Corinth, chapter 3, Paul writes, Christ himself is the foundation. Here he says, the apostles and prophets are the foundation. Is this a contradiction? Of course not. What was the purpose of apostles and prophets? To reveal the word of God, right? Here's the mystery. Thus saith the Lord, the Lord has said, the Holy Spirit says the man who owns this belt will end up bound in Jerusalem. In the early church, before the completed scriptures here, apostles and prophets gave divine revelation. Again, we read of Agabus and Acts, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius from chapter 13. The risen Lord gave these men and some women, these prophets, as gifts to the church to speak on his behalf to those who didn't have his written revelation in its entirety. These new churches that were being formed, they needed guidance. They needed instruction. And so God would allow them to give his revelation and guidance in the forms of either predictions of things to come, foretelling, or godly analysis of specific situations, forthtelling. But always, always accurate. Always concerning some revealed purpose of God as it related to his church or the body of who? Christ. That's right. So you see, Jesus Christ is the foundation. The foundation is the revelation of Christ. The foundation is the teaching of the apostles concerning Christ. The foundation is the revelation given by the prophets concerning Christ. The foundation of our faith is all truth concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is Christ the foundation of the household of God, but Paul says at the end of verse 20 that he is the cornerstone. He's the most important piece of the house of God, the keystone which every other part of the structure is oriented or based upon. In other words, if I'm starting to build a house or some sort of building, the first stone that I lay, it has to be plumb and it has to be square. It has to have the right angle here. And it also has to be perfectly flat or else the whole structure is going to be off. Either, either the pitch or the angle. If I have a stone with a weak foundation, begins to sink down a little bit, well, what's going to happen to the rest of the structure? It's going to go along with the pitch of that first stone. If it's angled to the left or the right by even a centimeter, what's going to happen to the rest of the building? Yeah, it's going to start going that way a little bit, even a little bit at a time, but it may end up off the foundation at some point. It's got to be just right. Not only does the cornerstone set the standard for the correct pitch and right angles, but it's the one that bears the most weight, right? It's the first one. It supports the main weight as the building continues to be constructed around it. It had to be the straightest and strongest of all stones. It had to be perfect, perfect stone. 
There is no more perfect stone for the holy temple of God than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he's the principal stone. He's the chief stone, the cornerstone. He's the one that the whole building depends upon for, upon for structural stability. And, as Paul says in verse 21, the subsequent joining together of all the rest of the stones. Now, who do you think the rest of these stones are? Yeah, he says, he says we've been brought near. We're now a part of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So again, who makes up the rest of the stones? We do. Even though the Apostle Paul doesn't outright say it here, Peter does. He comes right out and calls us stones, living stones. He says, those who have been saved by the precious blood, those who have tasted the kindness of the Lord, come to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. He says, Peter says, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are the living stones. This would imply, of course, that there are dead stones, but that's not us anymore, right? We're not dead anymore. We're no longer dead. Peter uses the exact same terminology as Paul. Enmity abolished, being built up, being edified, spiritual household, and all by the grace and all through and in Christ Jesus, by the grace of Christ Jesus. They say the same thing because they were inspired by the same spirit. Now, focus on our verse 21 again. I'll bring it back here. I want to quickly spend the remainder of our time looking at these very important phrases in 21 and 22. Joined together, built together, growing up. Based on what Paul said at the beginning of this chapter, we who have been brought near are positionally considered to be living stones. Okay? In other words, spiritually speaking, we were dead. We had no life. We had no hope. We had no God. We were without the true God in this world, right? In fact, the God we formerly served is the same God who the rest of the dead stones serve. We walked according to the ruler of the power of the air, along with the other dead men walking, the other sons of disobedience, he said earlier. But now we are alive. Now we have been made children of God. Now we have been welcomed into the household of God. Now we have been made citizens of his kingdom. Now we have been adopted as a son or a daughter into his family. Now, whether Jew or Gentile, we have been born again and joined together with other living stones through faith in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Positionally positionally speaking, it's ours. It's finished. It's done. We are justified. We have been made to be righteous, declared righteous in the sight of a holy God through Jesus Christ. But as we carry on, or as we carry out the rest of our lives on this earth, we are being joined together, okay? We are being built up together. We are growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. Look at it again, verse 19. We are already 
members of God's household, past tense. That's positional justification. It's done. We're in. Verses 21 and 22, present tense. We are being joined. We are being built. We are growing into. See that? It means it's still happening. What does this mean? Well, first of all, in a corporate sense, every believing Jew and Gentile that is saved is another living stone added to this building which has Christ as the foundation and the cornerstone. Construction will not stop until the last living stone is added, until the whole building is complete, corporately speaking. But on a personal level, each living stone has to be made to fit within the parameters of this building. We have to be shaped to fit into our slot on the wall. Leading me to ask, who says that the Lord doesn't care about personal holiness? Okay? The building is growing, the church is growing, the sanctuary is growing, and the most inner, innermost part, the holy place where God dwells, is continuing to grow as the members of his household, those, these non-living, uh, excuse me, these now-living Jew and Gentiles are also growing individually. We're all growing. He says it right here in verse 22. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So it goes from the building as a whole to the more personal, you also. I believe this is a picture of individual Gentile living stones being fashioned, formed, fitted to perfection, just as the Jewish living stones, including Paul, are being fashioned and formed according to the standard of the standard of the cornerstone who is Christ we are being molded shaped hammered chiseled away at so that we can fit perfectly within our spot on this structure let's be honest sometimes this molding isn't pleasant right but it's necessary back in 1 kings chapter 6 when solomon was building the temple it says the house while it was being built was built of stone prepared at the quarry there was neither hammer nor axe nor iron tool heard in the house while it was being built. Now, that's saying something. You couldn't hear a hammer. You couldn't hear a chisel in the, in the temple while it was being constructed. It was being constructed somewhere else. That's where all the, the banging went on. Right now, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside of us, right? We are told that our bodies are temples of the living God. We are told that he has taken up residence within those who belong to him. And it seems clear to me that those who truly belong to him, who have truly been given new life in Christ, those who are truly saved, are in the quarry of life here on this earth. As we are continually being shaped and fitted for their place, for our place in this structure. Okay? I know this is getting a little bit spiritualized here, but this is what's known as our progressive sanctification. We're being hammered away at. We're being chiseled away at. We're continually growing, being built up, edified, strengthened, conformed, and transformed. And this is a good thing. It's a great thing, which is why this, this nonsensical, uh, absurd, ridiculous, oxymoronical, is that a word? I'll say oxymoronical, and I'll just say it now, totally heretical, 
false teaching known as carnal Christianity is so very dangerous. Have you heard of this carnal Christianity? It started to rear its head even here over, over the last year or so. Men who have said, oh, well, you know, I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, I signed a card, I raised a hand, I thought a thought, I threw a stick into a fire, and now I can just go on living any way that I want to because I got my get-out-of-hell-free card. Or maybe I'll just stay stagnant, spiritually stagnant for the next 40 or 50 years. I don't know. No, no real growth, though. Oh, no, no, no. That's not what Paul says here. He says we're growing. We're being built you know, we've, we've, had, we've had them here. Physical men, but, but spiritual and emotional toddlers who claim Christ but live any way they choose. Then, when they're called to give an account on their claim that, when they're called to give an account by the scriptures or, or, or otherwise, the, they say, my carnality made me do it. Not just a, a slip up here and there or a mournful battle with our residual sin nature like we all have and will continue to have until the day that we go to be with the Lord, but these guys will sin blatantly and repeatedly for years. And they say, oh, yeah, I have this problem. You know, oh, yeah, it's, it's just the flesh. Oh, yeah, I, I, just, I just treat her like this because I'm a carnal Christian. I can't stop doing this. I can't stop doing that because I'm a carnal Christian. And I, I say to these little boys pretending to be men, you got half of that right. You are carnal because you're still dead. You're still in your sins. The wrath of God still remains upon you. And unless the Lord saves you by his sovereign grace alone and makes you alive together with Christ, you will perish in your sin and the wrath of God will remain on you for all of eternity. So I warn them to flee from this silly little antinomian philosophy known as easy believism. The Christian life is anything but easy. It's not easy to be molded into the image of Christ. It's not easy to be hammered on through the conviction of the word, the word of God or, or circumstances even that he brings into our life. It's not easy to be chiseled away at, but it's necessary as each stone must be perfect. As Christ our Lord is perfect, and we will be perfect one day. Amen? My plea to anyone, maybe watching, listening, anyone who believes in such erroneous thinking would be maybe for the first time in your life to actually believe in the word of God. If you truly hear his voice through his word and truly repent of your sin, turn of your sin and truly allow him to go to work on your life, then you too can be a part of this holy sanctuary, this dwelling place of God, the Holy Spirit. I often read of texts like this in Ephesians chapter 2, and I think, how could we not strive for holiness? <laughs> how could we not long to be built up in the Lord? He's good. He's perfect. Now, how could, how could our greatest desire not be to be conformed into the image of the perfect Son of God? Look what he's done for us. Even us, lowly Gentiles. My brothers and sisters, those of you who belong to him, those of you who are certain that you belong to him, I'm, I'm here to tell you tonight, I'm here to encourage you based on this passage that the abundant riches of, um, have, been, have been poured out upon us through the sacrificial death of the perfect son of God. And in light of this, don't take your new position in Christ lightly. 
Rest in the fact that you have been declared righteous in the sight of a holy God. Rest in it. Take comfort in that, the ultimate comfort in that. Have a peace that surpasses all understanding in that. But don't be afraid to now ask him to make you aware of areas you're falling short of his glory. Ask him to convict you in these areas, to then shape you and mold you and conform you and rid you of those things which are inhibiting your growth toward his likeness, even in this life, even if it really, really hurts. Have it sanded down, have it chipped away, have it hammered off completely. Even if he has to take it away completely, it's worth it. It's worth it. It'll be worth it as we all, true living stones, continue to be joined together, to be built up into a dwelling place for the true and living God as we continue to long for that day when we see him face to face. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's have Noel come up and lead us again in Christ the solid rock. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this night. We thank you that you have brought us, all of us in here, us lowly Gentiles, into the kingdom, into your household, and that you have saved us by your amazing grace alone. We are eternally grateful, and we do long for that day when we see you face to face, and we we give you the praise and exaltation and glorification that you and you alone deserve. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.